Section two of the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Section two. Chapter eight. Hildegarde, waving a large silk flag, greeted him on the porch, and even as he kissed her, he felt with a sinking feeling of the heart that these three years had taken their toll. She was a woman of forty now, with a faint skirmish line of gray hairs in her head. The sight depressed him. Up in his room he saw his reflection in the familiar mirror, and went closer and examined his own face with anxiety, comparing it after a moment with a photograph of himself in uniform taken just before the war. "'Good Lord!' he said aloud. The process was continuing. There was no doubt of it. He looked now like a man of thirty, instead of being delighted. He was uneasy. He was growing younger, and had hitherto hoped that once he reached a bodily age equivalent to his age in years, the grotesque phenomenon which had marked his birth would cease the function. He shuddered. His destiny seemed to him awful, incredible. When he came downstairs, Hildegard was waiting for him. She appeared annoyed and he wondered if she had at last discovered that there was something amiss. It was with an effort to relieve the tension between them that he broached the matter at dinner, in what he considered a delicate way. Well, he remarked lightly, everybody says I look younger than ever. Hildegard regarded him with scorn. She sniffed. Do you think it's anything to boast about? Well, I'm not boasting, he asserted uncomfortably. She sniffed again. The idea, she said, and after a moment, I should think you'd have enough pride to stop it. How can I? he demanded. I'm not going to argue with you, she retorted. But there's a right way of doing things and a wrong way. If you've made up your mind to be different from everyone else, I don't suppose I can stop you, but I really don't think it's very considerate. But, Hildegard, I can't help it. You can, too. You're simply stubborn. You think you don't want to be like anyone else. You always have been that way, and you always will be. But just think how it would be if everyone else looked at things as you do. What would the world be like? As this was an inane and unanswerable argument, Benjamin made no reply, and from that time on a chasm began to widen between them. He wondered what possible fascination she had ever exercised over him. To add to the breach, he found that as the new century gathered headway, that his thirst for gaiety grew stronger. Never a party of any kind in the city of Baltimore, but he was there, dancing with the prettiest of the young married women, chatting with the most popular of the debutantes, and finding their company charming, while his wife, a dowager of evil omen, sat among the chaperones, now in haughty disapproval, and now following him with solemn, puzzled and reproachful eyes. Look, people would remark, what a pity, a young fellow that age tied to a woman of forty-five. He must be twenty years younger than his wife. They had forgotten, as people invariably forget, that back in 1880 their mamas and papas had also remarked about this same ill-matched pair. Benjamin's growing unhappiness at home was compensated for by his many new interests. He took up golf and made a great success of it. He went in for dancing. 
In 1906, he was an expert at the Boston, and in 1908, he was considered proficient at the Maxine, while in 1909, his castle walk was the envy of every young man in town. His social activities, of course, interfered to some extent with his business, but then he had worked hard at wholesale hardware for twenty-five years and felt that he could soon hand it on to his son, Roscoe, who had recently graduated from Harvard. He and his son, in fact, were often mistaken for each other. This pleased Benjamin. He soon forgot the insidious fear which had come over him on his return from the Spanish-American War, and grew to take a naive pleasure in his appearance. There was only one fly in the delicious ointment. He hated to appear in public with his wife. Hildegard was almost fifty, and the sight of her made him feel absurd. Chapter 9 One September day in 1910, a few years after Roger Button and Company Wholesale Hardware had been handed over to young Roscoe Button, a man apparently about twenty years old, entered himself as a freshman at Harvard University in Cambridge. He did not make the mistake of announcing that he would never see fifty again, nor did he mention the fact that his son, had been graduated from the same institution ten years before. He was admitted and almost immediately attained a prominent position in the class, partially because he seemed a little older than the other freshmen, whose average age was about eighteen. But his success was largely due to the fact that in the football game with Yale he played so brilliantly, with so much dash, and with such a cold, remorseless anger that he scored seven touchdowns and fourteen field goals for Harvard, and caused one entire eleven of Yale men to be carried singly away the, from the field, unconscious. He was the most celebrated man in college. Strange to say, in his third or junior year, he was scarcely able to make the team. Coaches said that he had lost weight, and it seemed to the more observant among them that he was not quite as tall as before. He made no touchdowns, indeed. He was retained on the team chiefly in hope that his enormous reputation would bring terror and disorganization to the Yale team. In his senior year, he did not make the team at all. He had grown so slight and frail that one day he was taken by some sophomores for freshmen, an incident which humiliated him terribly. He became known as something of a prodigy, a senior who was surely no more than sixteen and he was often shocked at the worldliness of some of his classmates. His studies seemed harder to him. He felt that they were too advanced. He heard his classmates speak of St. Midas, the famous preparatory school at which so many of them had prepared for college, and he determined after his graduation to enter himself at St. Midas, where the sheltered life among boys his own size would be more congenial to him. Upon his graduation in 1914, he went home to Baltimore with his Harvard diploma in his pocket. Hildegard was now residing in Italy, so Benjamin went to live with his son Roscoe. But though he was welcomed in a general way, there was obviously no heartiness in Roscoe's feeling toward him. There was even perceptible a tendency on his son's part to think that Benjamin was, as he moped about the house in adolescence mooniness, was somewhat in the way. Roscoe was married now and prominent in Baltimore life, and he wanted no scandal to creep out in connection with his family. 
Benjamin, no longer persona grata, with the debutantes and younger college set, found himself much left done, except for the companionship of three or four fifteen-year-old boys in the neighborhood. His idea of going to St. Midas's school recurred to him. Say, said Roscoe one day, I've told you over and over that I want to go to prep school. Well, go then, replied Roscoe shortly. The matter was distasteful to him, and he wished to avoid a discussion. I can't go alone, said Benjamin helplessly. You'll have to enter me and take me up there. I haven't got time, declared Roscoe abruptly. His eye narrowed, and he looked uneasily at his father. As a matter of fact, he added, you better not go on with this business much longer. You better pull up short. You better, you better, he paused, and his face crimsoned as he sought for words. You better turn right around and start back the other way. This has gone too far to be a joke. It isn't funny any longer. You, you, you behave yourself. Benjamin looked at him on the verge of tears. And another thing, continued Roscoe, when visitors are in the house, I want you to call me uncle, not Roscoe, but uncle. Do you understand? It looks absurd for a boy of fifteen to call me by my first name. Perhaps you'd better call me Uncle all the time. So you get used to it. With a harsh look after his father, Roscoe turned away. Chapter 10 At the termination of his interview, Benjamin wandered dismally upstairs and stared at himself in a mirror. He had not shaved for three months, but it could find nothing on his face but a faint white down with which it seemed unnecessary to meddle. When he had first come home from Harvard, Roscoe had approached him with the proposition that he should wear eyeglasses and imitation whiskers glued to his cheeks, and it had seemed for a moment that the farce of his early years was to be repeated, but whiskers had itched and made him ashamed. He wept, and Roscoe had reluctantly relented. Benjamin opened a book of boy stories, The Boy Scouts in Bimini Bay, and began to read. But he found himself thinking persistently about the war. American had joined the Allies' cause during the preceding month, and Benjamin wanted to enlist. But the last sixteen was the minimum age, and he did not look that old. His true age, which was fifty-seven, would have disqualified him anyway. There was a knock at the door and a butler appeared with a letter bearing a large official legend in the corner and addressed to Mr. Benjamin Button. Benjamin tore it open eagerly, and read the enclosure with delight. It formed him that many reserve officers who had served in the Spanish-American War were being called back into service with a higher rank, and it enclosed his commission as Brigadier General in the United States Army, with orders to report immediately. Benjamin jumped to his feet fairly quivering with enthusiasm. This was what he had wanted. He seized his cap, and ten minutes later he had entered a large tailoring establishment on Charles Street, and asked in his uncertain treble to be measured for a uniform. "'Want to play soldier, Sonny?' demanded the clerk casually. Benjamin flushed. "'Say, never mind what I want,' he retorted angrily. "'My name's Benjamin, and I live on Mount Vernon Place.' "'So you know I'm good for it.' "'Well,' admitted the clerk hesitantly, "'if you're not, I guess your daddy is all right.' Benjamin was measured, and a week later his uniform was completed. 
He had difficulty in obtaining the proper general's insignia because the dealer kept insisting to Benjamin that a nice VWCA badge would look just as well and be much more fun to play with. Saying nothing to Roscoe, he left the house one night and proceeded by train to Camp Mosby in South Carolina, where he was to command an infantry brigade. On a sultry April day he approached the entrance to the camp, paid off the taxicab which had brought him from the station, and turned to the sentry on guard. "'Get someone to handle my luggage,' he said briskly. The sentry eyed him reproachfully. "'Say,' he remarked, "'where are you going with the general, Dud, sonny?' Benjamin, veteran of the Spanish-American War, whirled upon him with fire in his eye, but with, alas, a changing treble voice. "'Come to attention!' he tried to thunder. He paused for breath. Then suddenly he saw the sentry snap his heels together and bring his rifle to the present. Benjamin concealed a smile of gratification, but when he glanced around his smile faded. It was not he who had inspired obedience but an imposing artillery colonel who was approaching on horseback. "'Colonel!' called Benjamin shrilly. The colonel came up, drew rein, and looked coldly down at him with a twinkle in his eye. "'Whose little boy are you?' he demanded kindly. "'I'll soon darn well show you whose little boy I am,' retorted Benjamin in a ferocious voice. "'And get down off that horse!' The colonel roared with laughter. "'You want him, eh, General?' "'Here!' cried Benjamin desperately. Read this! And he thrust his commission toward the colonel. The colonel read it, his eyes popping from their sockets. Where'd you get this? he demanded, slipping the document into his own pocket. I got it from the government, as you'll soon find out. You come along with me, said the colonel, with a peculiar look. We'll go up to headquarters and talk this over. Come along. The colonel turned and began walking his horse in the direction of headquarters. There was nothing for Benjamin to do but to follow, with as much dignity as possible, meanwhile promising himself a stern revenge. But his revenge did not materialize. Two days later, however, his son Roscoe materialized from Baltimore, hot and cross, from a hasty trip, and escorted the weaking general, sans uniform, back to his home. CHAPTER Eleven. In 1920 Roscoe Button's first child was born. During the attendant festivities, however, no one thought it the thing to mention that the little grubby boy, apparently about ten years of age, who played around the house with lead soldiers and a miniature circus, was a new baby's own grandfather. No one disliked the little boy, whose fresh, cheerful face was crossed with just a hint of sadness, but to Roscoe Button his presence was a source of torment. In the idiom of his generation, Roscoe did not consider the matter efficient. It seemed to him that his father, in refusing to look sixty, had not behaved like a red-blooded he-man. This was Roscoe's favorite expression. But in a curious and perverse manner, indeed, to think about the matter for as much as a half an hour drove him to the edge of insanity. Roscoe believed that live wires should keep young, but carrying it out on such a scale one's was inefficient, and there Roscoe rested. Five years later, Roscoe's little boy had grown old enough to play childish games with little Benjamin, under the supervision of the same nurse. 
Roscoe took them both to kindergarten on the same day, and Benjamin found that playing with little strips of colored paper, making mats and chains and curious and beautiful designs, was the most fascinating game in the world. Once he was bad and had to stand in the corner. Then he cried, but for the most part there were gay hours in the cheerful room, with the sunlight coming in the windows, and Miss Bailey's kind hand resting for a moment now and then in his tousled hair. Roscoe's son moved up into the first grade after a year, but Benjamin stayed on in the kindergarten. He was very happy. Sometimes, when other tots talked about what they would do when they grew up, a shadow would cross his little face as if, in a dim, childish way, he relished that those were things in which he was never to share. The days flowed on monotonous content. He went back a third year to the kindergarten, but he was too little now to understand what the bright shining strips of paper were for. He cried because the other boys were bigger than he, and he was afraid of them. Teacher talked to him, but though he tried to understand, he could not understand at all. He was taken from kindergarten. His nurse Nana, in her starched gingham dress, became the center of his tiny world. On bright days, they walked in the park. Nana would point at a great gray monster and say, Elephant! and Benjamin would say it after her, and when he was being undressed for bed that night, he would say it over and over aloud to her, Elephant! 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 Sometimes Nana let him jump on the bed, which was fun, because if you sat down exactly right, it would bounce you up on your feet again, and if you said, Ah! for a long time while you jumped, you got a very pleasing broken vocal effect. He loved to take a big cane from the hat-rack and go around hitting chairs and tables with it and saying, fight, fight, fight. When there were people there, the old ladies would cluck at him, which interested him, and the young ladies would try to kiss him, which he submitted to with mild boredom. And when the long day was done at five o'clock, he would go upstairs with Nana and be fed an oatmeal and nice, soft, mushy food with a spoon. There were no troublesome memories in his childish sleep. No token came to him of his brave days at college, of the glittering years when he flustered the hearts of many girls. There were only the white, safe walls of his crib, and Nana, and a man who came to see him sometimes, and a great big orange ball that Nana pointed at just before his twilight bed hour, and called the sun. When the sun went, his eyes were sleepy. There were no dreams, no dreams to haunt him. The past, the wild charge at the head of his men up San Juan Hill, the first years of his marriage when he worked late into the summer dusk down in the busy city for young Hildegard, whom he loved, the days before that when he sat smoking far into the night in the gloomy old button house on Monroe Street with his grandfather, all those had faded, like the substantial dreams from his mind as though they had never been. He did not remember. He did not remember clearly whether the milk was warm or cool at his last feeding, or how the days passed. There was only his crib and Nana's familiar presence, and then he remembered nothing. When he was hungry he cried, that was all. Through the noons and nights he breathed, and over him there were soft mumblings and murmurings that he scarcely heard, and faintly differentiated smells and light and darkness. It was all dark and his white crib and the dim faces that moved above him and the warm sweet aroma of the milk faded out altogether from his mind 
End of the Curious Case of Benjamin Button Narrated by Mike Vendetti MikeVendetti.com